Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, my guest is Andrea Zanin, co-founder of Confidante and a climate investor who recently was a guest on a previous episode of Climate Changers, where he shared his goals and expectations about COP28. And today, he's going to share his takeaways from the actual meeting. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the show. Nice to be back, Ryan. Thank you for having me. For people who are not familiar with COP meetings, what are they and why do they matter? Uh, Absolutely. Great start. So I've attended about five COP of the last 15 years. They are the most important climate summit that have been going on since 1982. The uh, heads of states, minister of finance, as of recently, also um, private sector uh, leaders, central bank governors, banks, investment fund participate to really set the tone and set the agenda for policy changes as it relates to climate change, climate mitigation, climate adaptation. And as the, the needle moves towards a, a, a decarbonized future in industries and marketplace, you see much more talking about green growth, clean tech, startup. And so the capital markets, the UN, because this is a UN-led uh, event, over 150 heads of states were there to really uh, be part of this movement, address the urgency of climate-induced disasters, which are starting to affect GDP growth and uh, economic activity across the globe. And so it is the yearly event. And what was important about this one is the first time one of the top 10 oil and gas producers in the world hosted it, the UAE, uh, the seventh largest oil producer. So I think that was very significant, and we'll discuss more of the details. Sure. Well, that's an interesting choice to host the COP28 at the UAE, and the upcoming 29 is going to be in Azerbaijan. So what are the pros and Correct. cons of hosting international climate conferences in countries that produce so much carbon-based energy? Look, it's easy to criticize, right, now the uh, the carbon polluter, the, car- the carbon culprit to want to be part of the net zero movement, the decarbonization. But at the same time, if we don't have the oil producing countries, the worst offender is at the table. We're never going to get the financing and we're never going to phase away, phase down, phase out of hydrocarbon. So I think this was a controversial, difficult step, but important. And we can get to some of the milestones that uh, were accomplished. Are the oil producing countries using that to their advantage as a marketing? Of course they are. But they also put in critical investment, critical financing that is missing. So we have to have everybody at the table. We need the NGOs, which are the one always doing the legwork, the global foundations, the international financial institution, the UN. But unless you have the financiers, unless you have the regulators and also the OPEC, countries, you're not going to shift the needle as quickly as we want. That's why I welcome the UAE hosting it. I welcome Azerbaijan. I would love to see Canada host the following one because that's also a a major oil and gas and coal producer, which if these guys do their job right, they can convert some of the existing oil and gas infrastructure in green hydrogen infrastructure, in clean tech infrastructure, and that therefore gain a competitive edge that they don't have right now. So while the final agreement that came out of this meeting falls short of uh, binding commitments and a complete phase out of fossil fuels, it seems to have been viewed as a success. Do you agree? A hundred percent. I think, uh, number one, we have all actors at the table, which is an important step forward. Uh, number two, we have not talked about uh, phase out, 
because phase out is not viable in the short term. Why is not viable? Because we are behind. We've taken too few steps toward complete decarbonizations, but we are starting, we are accelerating. So having a communicate, back to your first question, what did these events look like? They're extremely bureaucratic. Uh, they're almost 20 days long. Nobody agrees on anything because you have to protect the interests of the small islands, but also the carbon polluters, the China, the India, the Pakistan, the, the US, the Canada. So having some language that indicates a progressive phasing away from oil and gas, it's important. Having the finances from the UAE, day one of the event, the UAE put down $100 million that needed to jumpstart the uh, launch of the damage and loss uh, fund that has been debated for years and nobody got it going because we were missing money. So I think this was a success. Uh, there were more protests than usual in, in the UAE because, of course, the civil society groups are not happy. The small island group are not happy. Rightly so. But I think we need all to applaud and celebrate uh, the progress. And guess what? Everybody's realizing that we are facing an industrial revolution of massive potential if we all start working toward clean tech, green growth, and the new industry. And I think decarbonization is going to be one of the big ones. So you talked about the island nations, and there was an island nation revolt that you just referred to. Can you talk a little bit about that? They are disproportionately affected, uh, unfortunately, because climate change and climate uh, variability has exposed them to uh, sea level rise. Some of these islands in the Pacific, like Vanuatu, uh, Kiribati, are having extreme natural disaster that have become more frequent and more intense. Island states represent only 1% of the global population. However, they had the same right of each country, each citizen. And so their voices have to be heard. And sometimes the, the veto and the protest and the loud disgust is what they have, and they leverage it to the maximum, and they should do so. I think the positive news is that uh, some of the finance, including the damage fund, which will be managed by the World Bank, will essentially direct financing towards the most vulnerable states, the hotspot countries, including small islands that are starting to even relinquish some of their, uh, their, their territory because they don't, you know, they can never defend against uh, changing temperatures. So they, they're literally looking for lands in other countries that can be leased to them so they can relocate their population. So I think it's going to help maintain the news, the pressures, because ultimately PR, bad PR, is going to help bring the bad actors to the table, bring the oil-producing countries to put more money towards climate mitigation and adaptation. So, Andrea, you mentioned the loss and damage fund that's built to help compensate for the dangers that some of these small countries face. Who contributes to that and how does it work? Ideally, all uh, OECD countries, all wealthy countries who should contribute to basically have a facility that is able to disperse funds when an event happens. It could be a, a flood, it could be an earthquake, it could be a, even if it's not a climate uh, triggered event, to basically help the least resilient countries bounce back. And that has been a tag that has been picked up at international financial institutions, World Bank, Islamic Development Bank, African Development Bank, United Nations. Now we have the first, as of right now, it's about 800 million, I was checking this morning, about $800 million committed. The first 100 came from the UAE, then uh, 
Japan, the US, Canada, and other Italy, the European Union is the second largest contributor. Uh, so the wealthy country are putting in the money to have a little bit of a financial buffer to help address damage and losses caused by climate-induced disasters. That financing is indispensable to basically almost have a quick reaction uh, fund that deploys capital towards damage and loss assessment, needs assessment, and help these uh, disproportionately affected countries by disaster to recover quickly, bounce back, and and gain those early funding that are always the most difficult to have. So we are very far to get into the multi-billion dollar amount that the fund needs to be fully operational. Thankfully, I think the fund will be managed by the World Bank, which is now, as you know, you ha- they have a new president, Mr. Banga, is from the Global South, and but is also Wall Street champion. So he understands capital markets, comes from the Global South, understands what India, for example, he's from India originally, problems are, and I think it's uh, it couldn't have been placed in better hands because if somebody understands the financial markets, but also understand development, climate, and is a big advocate for climate mitigation. So I think these are positive steps. We still fall short of the, the several billion dollars that we still have to get into this fund, but this is a promising start. And in the news, we heard a lot about the elders group. That's new to me, uh, but they're very vocal. So who are they and what was their role? You know, the wisdom they've been bringing to uh, the climate table is uh, incredible, priceless. They've been very vocal and they've also, you know, kind of tried to leverage their international trust experience and skill set to convene meetings, to make uh, the best practices be conducive to uh, agreements. Uh, they've been very active and present in Davos as well, where the first movement coalition has really brought in the Bill Gates of the world and the top 50 global corporation to basically invest and buy on the green products like green cement, green hydrogen, green steel, green aluminum, green coal. They're not competitive right now, but they are sending a price signal and saying, we're committed uh, to make this happen. And so the elder, you almost have to think as those super advisors that convene that power, that have been leading Fortune 500 company, uh, that have been heads of state, that have been prime minister, finance minister, central bank governor, that understand that we are at a pivotal time and that you need a lot of diplomacy and you need everybody at the table. You need OPEC, but you also need Wall Street and you also need the foundations and the small island states and the global activists, all to discuss these global contracts. In a way, I almost think that they are the needle uh, that may basically helps balance the discussion, ensuring that the vulnerable priority are, are addressed, but that we don't force a, an unruly discussion with the private sector because, you know, their argument is we're not going to move out of oil anytime soon, but we do want to be part of the green industrial revolution that it's uh, happening, which I think is going to be as big as the internet of the 90s, as I keep saying. And you've been to international climate conferences under a number of U.S. administrations. What does U.S. leadership look like under the Biden administration? Amazingly impactful in the sense that the Inflation Reduction Act is something that nobody has. Almost $400 billion of basically subsidized investment to to turbocharge electric uh, vehicle development, charging stations, clean tech. So it's in a way, that's that's a subsidy that boosts the U.S. competitiveness. That, by the way, has already leveraged like $1.3, $1.5 trillion worth of green investments. The good news is also it's happening in a lot of the conservative states in the U.S. People don't know that, which means it creates jobs. 
it might displace like coal jobs, but it create new one. And so the majority of the funds have actually gone into uh, Republican states. Uh, so Canada is an example that is watching closely what's happening in the U.S. and try to follow that example. European are scared because they're losing competitiveness because essentially U.S. firms are going to get a, a green subsidies if they're moving in that uh, direction. But at the end of the day, the U.S. is uh, accelerating and being one of the stewards of uh, clean tech, green tech across the board, not just in the, you know, in the large infrastructure investment. Startup are becoming very active, green unicorns. The U.S. has a lot of them. So I think it's uh, the first mover advantage is what was discussed at COP about the U.S. And then also repeated in Davos a couple of weeks ago where everybody now wants to catch up to the U.S. So I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with the real action, the real investment that are happening to create new jobs and decarbonization. So you just talked about this a little bit, but let's dig in a little deeper. What changes have you seen in the world economy due to these meetings? And how do you see them further reshaping the future economy? I often refer to these new trends that I see, which are, they all start with a D, decarbonization, deglobalization, and digitization. So decarbonization, it's going to be one of the biggest business trends of the next five years. Just to quote the International Energy Agency, the Director General, uh, Mr. Byroll, said at COP uh, that clean tech investment is unstoppable. It's already reached roughly $2.5 uh, trillion in 2022 to get to the net zero by 2050, that has to be at least double every year. That doubling, and I think we'll surpass it, in my view, is going to happen by 2025. So decarbonization is the name of the game. And you shouldn't be surprised that the only regulated carbon exchange and clearinghouse in the world, it's actually in Abu Dhabi, the capital of the UAE. So Saudi, which is the second, as of right now, second largest oil producer after the U.S. The U.S., by the way, produced 13 million and 600 barrel a day of oil during COP. So the largest producer in the world. Saudi, the second, is actually launching their own carbon trading mechanism because carbon is becoming another asset class that uh, that will generate a lot of uh, income, that will attract a lot of investment. So I, I do think decarbonization is going to, and maybe when we call it decarbonization, it's less politicized than when we call it ESG, than when we call it uh, climate investment, green finance. I think it's, uh, it's one of the trends that will create jobs, help countries stay competitive, uh, more resilient. I give an example of resilience. Texas, uh, which is you know one of the largest economies in the U.S., lost probably up to $100 billion due to a cold freeze that happened in February of 2021. That's not peanuts, $100 billion. 90% of these losses could have been absorbed and reduced if you had warning systems, early warning system, if you had in place simple mitigation plans and just a little more of investment in heating and water piping. So again, the cost of not doing something is becoming extremely high. So decarbonization, it's, it's much bigger than climate change. It's really about ensuring innovation, uh, ensuring risk reduction, and ensuring competitiveness. So I think that's going to be one of the key pillars of the next five years, in my view, and it will accelerate much faster than we expect. And you've, you've gone into great detail about the increasing levels of investment, but somebody's got to do something with that money. And you work with and advise a number of green entrepreneurs. What opportunities do you see coming for green entrepreneurship following this meeting? 
That's a great question. I, uh, you know, I work quite a bit in uh, smart cities and micro mobility. Micro mobility, I think it's uh, one aspect that is taking off. E bikes is definitely a, an area that it's getting a lot of attention from the v, VC community, meaning it's actually striking. The majority of Californians drive their car for six miles a day. An e-bike, which are now some of the best are American-made, like, you know, there's one in here in Denver, a fatty e-bike, uh, which, you know, it's a great example of locally made, women-led. Uh, they're serving the police, they're serving the military, they're serving the mayors, uh, and these bikes will cost you 25 cents in electricity to recharge to cover 50 miles a day, not six miles a day. They are comfortable. It's a good example. The cargo bikes have grown 100 plus percent uh, because, you know, it allows you to take your kids to school, go to the supermarket. They're very sturdy. They work in any terrain. They're a lot of fun. Exactly. So I think mobility is definitely going to be uh, a great uh, growth opportunity for entrepreneurs. I do think that everything data related, I would even say, the startup that managed to get into how do I reward reward users that reduce their carbon output by basically giving financial incentives, small financial rewards. So everything that is data-driven, everything that is uh, monitoring and communicating how we are reducing carbon emissions will be interesting for the capital markets. I also will say that carbon scoring, ESG scoring, is going to become an, a, a new label, a new trend, meaning most companies in the U.S. in 2025 will be required to have an annual report, have a, a climate score, meaning how, how do you rank? If you rank more than 50 points, you'll be more investment worthy. So I think there is now a push of ESG that will help entrepreneurs. Those entrepreneurs that have green growth, decarbonization, and sustainability packaging into their business model, energy efficiency being a big one, energy, renewable energy and e-battery, massive, they will get more investment than others. So I think there's going to be a positive trend for those early stage companies that are raising capital that are sustainability focus they have women integrated into their boards as esg wants and so i think it's uh, we're going to see more green unicorns with a tech component added to it for sure what is your current overall outlook for green entrepreneurship in the u.s i'm very bullish i'm very bullish in the sense that if i'm raising capital now if i want to advise somebody who's raising capital make sure that you tap into the clean tech uh, trend, that you understand the cost of carbon, and that you understand the benefits of being carbon light in your operation. So really measure A to Z your carbon footprint, because that's going to become a compelling story, and that's going to become actually regulated. So let me give you an example. There's There are a few other companies that I, in early stage space, they are recycling, but as they're recycling, they're starting to measure the emission reduction that their recycling object allows. That's actually value in terms of carbon credits. Those reductions that happens because you're recycling uh, a stroller, for example, that can serve for another two years, those carbon reduction can be sold to the market and can add revenues to you. So uh, again, reducing carbon means more money, more efficiency, and ultimately more competitiveness. So I think the entrepreneurs that are very agile and then understand the markets and the regulations are going to benefit massively. So despite the dire situation we face with climate, you're always so optimistic. What makes you optimistic about the future? Until you understand the risk of not doing something, you're not going to put your money 
uh, where your mouth is, where you you know we, what you're doing every day. But it's, and I've been I've been seeing the cost of what we're not I'm not doing climate mitigation, I'm not doing resiliency and prevention and investing in, in green growth. And these numbers, which I've been advocating for years, are ballooning. I mean, they're I, I talked about Texas before. You know, the U.S. alone could be losing between five to ten percent of GDP because of climate-induced disasters, cold natural hazard, natural disasters. That's not insignificant. Global estimated GDP losses, according to Swiss Re, one of the largest reinsurance group, could vary between 8 to 16% by 2030 of global GDP. We're talking about trillions of dollars. So when the markets finally understand that the risk of not doing something is so significantly high, they start investing. And I think that's where we're at. One in three dollars of asset under management are going towards sustainability. One out of three. Uh, so the trend is positive. We're, we're being very slow, but I think we're picking up the pace. As I said, a couple of years ago, there was a, a UN report that said we will never get to $5, billion, $5 trillion invested a year to get to net zero in 2050. Well, we're already at 2.5. So I think the market is catching up. I see the US taking a massive lead regardless of the politics and the European Union and China following through. The fact that we have oil energy, banks, central bank governors. There's now 85 central bank governors working together toward standardizations of regulation for ESG. Everybody's on board. You can politicize us as much as you want. So I'm optimistic because I, I see the business case. I see the, the social impact and the vulnerability reduction opportunity, and they're all coming together, together greatly. And of course, the legwork has been done by those advocates, those small islands, the NGOs, the activists, which have been like, you know, punched in the face, so to speak, for so many years. And they're still unhappy and they're tired. But I think we turn the tipping point. Now, I can also be negative in the sense that since I thought about tipping points, the point of no returns, according to some of the scientists, have already been passed. So let's not forget that the, the, the coral reefs, the Amazon, the glaciers, that's going to be very tough to recover from that. And I think we have to be prepared to live in a society where there's more, there's going to be much more climate disruptions, more losses, more deaths, more natural hazards. So I can get gloomy, but what I'm saying is I think there's global agreements that there is a problem. There's still prime ministers saying that the biggest threat to their growth is climate activists. Don't get me wrong. So there's still nasty politics out there. But I have to be part of a, a balanced voice that comes from both the international development, the poverty reduction, the capital markets, and, and gave an opinion that is optimistic, viable, and credible. I do think the entrepreneurs will play critical roles, including these women that start their companies and that have more ethics, more integrity, and understand the risk in society have to be brought down to sustain profitability and, and share prosperity. So thanks for the realism, but more more than ever, thanks for the optimism. And Andrea, thanks for your work to make business and entrepreneurship a driver for environmental change. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. It was a pleasure to be back. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.